And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. You are late. We should not go tonight, Lord. I must. Every night. Until the time cabinet is found. <coughs> you are ill. I am dying, Chan. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case... Hello, Z! Would you like a jelly baby? My Sarah Jane. Oh, look, rocks. Wibbly wobbly, tiny rhyming. Watch it, Spaceman. Boy, watch it, Earth Girl. I will teach you the folly of your words, Doctor! Uh, Smith. Dr. John Smith. And this is Duggan. He's a detective who's been kind enough to catch me. You always were an optimist, weren't you? Thank you for the compliment. Hello. Mate in six moves, Master. Hello and welcome to episode three of Who True Freaks, the only podcast on the internet dedicated to blowing the lid off the problem of giant rats in the sewers of Victorian London. Oh, and we talked about Doctor Who as well. Hey everyone, I am one of your rotating guests on the show, Sean Ingle, and today we have got a plethora of awesome podcasters here to talk about one of the greatest Doctor Who episodes around, the talons of Wing Chiang. Yes, it's another Tom Baker episode, but I think everyone on this podcast just loves Tom Baker, so we'll be getting to the other iterations of the Doctor later on in the year. Uh, with me today, I've got, like I said, a plethora of wonderful podcasters, starting out with the essentially one half of the Two True Freaks uh, podcast network, uh, Mr. Chris Honeywell. Hey, Chris. Hey, I brought half my wit with me, too. Well, that's awesome. We get uh, Substitute Two True Freakers podcaster, Mr. Bill Robinson. Hello, Bill. Hello. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we have Mr. Dave Walker of Flash Legacies, who is probably beating off drunken Irish people from his door because we are recording today on the Irish holiday of St. Patrick's Day. Did you Dave? just say beating <laughs> off Irish? <laughs> I was okay. Well, that's what that's what you get when I don't script things. <laughs> that's that's one way to get are build a bit too far down the Leela Road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once we get to Leela, there might be a bit of beating off. 
Those, those underthings. <laughs> Dave. Hi. How how are you fending today? I'm hoping you're not beating off yet. Well. Okay. Uh, and the other voice that you just heard is another fellow British podcaster, host of the Fantastic Cast and 20 Minute Long Box, along with Andrew Leyland, who unfortunately couldn't make it this time around, but he'll be back. Ladies and gentlemen, first time on the Two True Freaks Network, Mr. Stephen Lacey. Hey, Stephen. Hello. Glad to have you. Um, Thanks for having me. It's it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, what I'm certain it's wonderful to be had. Um, finally, a person that I have a lot of uh, podcasting time with, uh, a fellow Guy Gardner fan, who you might know if you listen to my podcast, or if you don't, well, that's fine as well. Uh, he's also the co-host, along with Derek Ferguson, of the show... Uh, Crap, I'm at a loss now. My brain's not working. Better in the dark. Better in the dark. I want to listen to a show called Crap, I'm Lost Now. My brain's not working. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, Thomas. Better in the dark. Uh, it's early in the morning and coffee hasn't affected me yet. Thomas DJ. Thank you, Thomas, for coming on the show. And uh, thank well, you for not being humiliated for the fact that I forgot who you Don't worry. Although I keep seeing this like weird short pig-brained thing. Oh, it's just Shag. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, of course, that, that leads us into the final podcaster. Uh, the most... Probably the most... The person who has the most experience with Doctor Who. The uh, the host of the Fire and Water podcast, and also the host of the Who's Who, the Definitive Guide to the DC Universe podcast, along with Mr. Rob Kelly. Ladies and gentlemen, we're happy to have back to the Two True Freaks Network. The Irredeemable Shag. Hey. Hello, everyone. How are we? I'm doing good. Uh, thanks, everyone, for showing up for the show. And uh, at, since I left Shag off for the uh, end, I kind of wanted to mention that Shag had been to a certain little convention that has a little bit to do with Doctor Who. Shag, do you want to kind of mention anything about that? Sure. I mean, you specifically said I have the most experience with Doctor Who, so I'm going to leave out the parts about the late nights in the hotel rooms with Sylvester McCoy. But uh, I will mention that, uh, yes, I went to the Gallifrey One convention over uh, the Valentine's Day weekend, which, by the way, is kind of funny that they host a Doctor Who convention over Valentine's Day weekend. Some of us joked about, like, hmm, Doctor Who fans, when are they available? Oh, they don't have anything to do on Valentine's Day. So, <laughs> ends up there. Anyway, uh, so it was an amazing convention. It's out in Los Angeles. It's the world's largest annual Doctor Who fan-run convention, which is a lot of, you know, sort of identifiers. But by the end of it, yeah, it's, it's a pretty big thing. There was about 3,500 people there, and it actually sold out. And uh, I've been to a lot of different conventions, MegaCon, DragonCon, a few other ones, and I've never been to a convention like this before. Everyone there was insanely friendly. Like the night before... Everyone hangs out in the lobby of the hotel. It's not an actual official function. It's just called LobbyCon. And people just walk up to each other, introducing themselves, saying, hey, asking what you like about the show. I mean, normally you go to a convention, everyone's kind of focused on their little things or they're hanging out with their cliques or whatever. Here, literally everyone talked to each other. It was the most welcoming situation I've ever been in. And uh, it, was, it was wonderful. Now, some of the stars that were there, um, real quick, just to run through some of them. Freema Adjaman, who played Martha Jones. Sylvester McCoy, the Seventh Doctor, Philip Hinchcliffe, who we're going to be talking about a little bit today, Mark Strickson, who played uh, Turlow, Peter Purvis, who played Stephen, Deborah Watling, who played Victoria. Uh, I'm not going to name every guest because literally there's like tons. I'm just naming the big folks. Uh, Fraser Hines, who played Jamie, 
Ben Browder, who was in uh, a town called Mercy, but he played, mm-hmm. he was obviously famous from Star- Farscape and stuff. Dude, one of the funniest people I've ever heard in my life. He should be a stand-up comic. Mark Shepard, who... Got his big mustache. He does. He has the big mustache and the little uh, yes. soul patch thing. And there was like a five-minute discussion about the mustache, actually. <laughs> uh, Mark Shepard, who's been convention... in... Sorry, no, no, carry on. I'm being No, bad. what you got? Uh, he was at a convention in London back in July, three months after filming his appearance in Doc 2. And basically he said, I enjoyed the massage so much when I grew it for the show, I've not shaved it since. Um, my wife didn't like it, but he, he was just insane and brilliant. And his mustache is awesome. It is. It's a really manly mustache. It's, it's hysterical. And there was, as I said, there was tons of discussion about the mustache. Um, I'll just run uh, Mark Shepard, Dick Mills, Daphne Ashbrook, uh, Douglas McKinnon, who's a director who did Power of Three, Saul Metz. Um, Metzstein, who directed um, Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, you know, the, the Eye Patch Lady. Uh, oh, geez, I'm starting. There's, there's a million of them. Rose's dad, the, the lady who plays um, Madame Vastra, the guy who plays all the Centaurans, you know, all these, the, all these folks were there. I can go on and on. But um, <clears throat> really, absolutely wonderful convention. The, the way it's structured is, you know, there's, pan- there's about five or six panels going at any time. So you can go in and you can listen to someone and talk like, um, say, Sylvester McCoy. Or you can go over and hear a bunch of fan panels where they're dissecting the wilderness years, talking about the BBC and Virgin books and saying, you know, what worked and what didn't. Or there's another panel all about cosplaying. There's a ton of cosplaying at this convention. And uh, it really was probably one of my favorite convention experiences I've ever had. Because for me, I don't know about you guys, but for me, being a Doctor Who fan has been sort of a solitary existence. Like, I, I ha- obviously, I, I met people like yourselves online, but I don't know anyone in my real life that I can talk to about Doctor Who. They all they might be comic book fans or Do- Star Trek fans or whatever. Yeah, no, the Valentine's Day. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. after about, like, 1990 here in the States, where who wasn't being regularly broadcast anywhere? Yeah. Where, you know, there was that whole long period, as you call it, the wilderness years, where... Because it was in dormancy and because a lot of the PBS stations had stopped running it, there was no way for new fans to get it in, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so if for me, it was you know reading the books and listening to the Big Finish audios and finding people on the internet but never face-to-face. And here I'm in a room with 3,500 <clears throat> 3, people who, who are get it. You know, who, who can understand a joke about a jelly baby without having to explain it. You know, it's, it's or you, I've never seen so many 12-foot scarves or female TARDISes in my life. <laughs> you could probably ra- tie the scarves together and wrap them halfway around the world. You know? Oh, yeah. And they do this cool thing with ribbons, too, where it, people get these little ribbons. They're about, I don't know, four inches by, by two inches, printed up in advance, colored ribbons, and um, if you've ever been to, like, a, a conference for work or something, I see these in my work conferences. But they, they go on your badge. Usually, like, for a conference, let's say you're a, I don't know, you're chairman of some committee. You would have a badge, a, a ribbon that sticks to your badge that says, you know, committee chairman or something like that. Well, here, people get the goofiest, craziest Doctor Who sayings printed on there. Like, you know, my lipstick, my lipstick is Sonic or Allons-Y or all these different things. And they hand them out and trade them with each other. So by the end, attached to your name badge, you've got, like, this... I don't know, two foot long string of ribbons that are all multicolored. So it looks even a little bit like Tom Baker's scarf. It's kind of a cool thing. Chad, let and, me ask you this. Yeah. What's the, uh, what's the percentage of um, classic to new who? In, at in, this the, in the programming? Uh, I was thinking actually in terms of the, 
the audience, but yeah, the programming as well. Um, there's <clears throat> in the fan programming, there's probably a little more classic just because there's more to talk about, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but based on like the cosplaying, there was more new fans, I would say. Uh, or maybe it's just more fun to dress up as new characters, you know, because I saw I, I seriously, I cannot count how many female TARDISes I saw. There was just dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. And the number of Amy's and the number of Roses, I even saw a couple of Oswins. Um, and the convention was probably more girls than guys, too, by the way. So just to beat that myth of, you know, Doctor Who nerds living in their parents' basements like Star Trek fans, there are more girls here than guys, folks. So if you're looking Hey, hook- Shag, you sexist pig. Girls can yeah. live in their mom's yeah. basements, too. Okay. That's, that's the they guy can, in the pig mask. That's what I was thinking. They can good they point. can be unemployed be just as good as guys can. So shut your mouth, you pig. Fair enough. <laughs> guy so, with pig mask. For those gentlemen that want to meet girls that live in their parents' basement, this place to be. So, uh, so I would say that the, there's probably a little more tr- programming towards classic, but again, I think that's solely based on there's more to talk about. Because if you go in, also in like the dealers' room, eighty percent of the merchandise is new. Who you know. Um, again, uh, about eighty percent of the cosplays knew who. So, uh, well, I think else? that oh. probably has that, that probably has something to do with the fact that uh, once they decided to do the new who stuff, they really went out and promoted it. I mean, uh, most of the stuff that you could find in stores today, you will find a lot of new who stuff. We were talking last time in the last episode. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's what's getting marketed right now. Yeah. yeah. You, can, yeah. you yeah. can find the little adipose figures pretty much anywhere. So. Yeah, I mean, you look at it. Classic Who was always considered by the BBC as something of an embarrassment. And well, uh, in the last ten years of its run, yeah, yeah, and, and now, and you know, right from the start, right from when you know he who shall remain RTD said, uh, "Let's make it Buffy." It, it's they they have been aggressively making this a point of the spear, making this uh, part of a major push into other markets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, probably this is the most there's been of Doc 2 merchandising since Dalek Mania back in 64, 65. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's absolutely everywhere. You, you walk down the high street in the UK and you can walk into almost any shop that sells a range of goods and find something Doctor Who related in there, which yeah, is so- an amazing high street inspiration. That's wild for us because here in the States we had absolute, other than the Target novels, we had mm-hmm. no Doctor Who merchandise until about six years ago. And then it's been slowly well, creeping. And I'd say in the last two years, an explosion. I mean, we have book, bookstores over here called Books a Million. Just a general yep. bookstore. They had this giant end cap display over Christmas of Doctor Who stuff. And I'm just my jaw was on the floor. And there was always people circling around it. Like, I couldn't even get to it. It was and unbelievable. That would probably time with the point that BBC America really stepped up their involvement and promotion of the show. Yeah, the Matt, the the Matt Smith. I'm sorry, yeah. Stephen. Go I was ahead. in San Francisco two years ago at the weekend that. Now, what's the convention that takes place in San Francisco? Is it WonderCon? Uh, could be. There's there's a number of different ones, but I don't know which the, one. The really big one from early April. Uh, and I was I was in town for that weekend. I didn't go because I would have had my ass kicked by the person I was travelling with. But walking in the district around the convention centre, every single street lamp had uh, banners on. One side BBC America Doctor Who, the other side Atardis, and it was just phenomenal. To see that amount of plugging for the show, you know, they bought the rights to, for the external marketing to be nothing but Doctor Who and promoting WonderCon. It was yeah. huge. 
at the beginning that was of the year that I think they put Neil Gaiman was there talking about Doctor Who with Mark Shepard because it was the year of the um, uh, Doctor's wife. Yeah. With, the, with, the with the beginning start of, of year, oh, I'm sorry, Shag. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. no, you speak, please. At the beginning of uh, the advent of season five, the first uh, Matt Smith season, there was it was so surreal for me to be walking down a street here in New York and have a bus pass me by with an actual poster on the side advertising the new season. Because <laughs> it was, we had never dreamed back when. Our, my first exposure was back in, in, I think it was 1979 or so, when uh, then Lionheart Entertainment brought over a package of the first four years of Tom Baker to show in America. And I never could dream of these little syndicate of this show actually getting this sort of mainstream acceptance. Um, well, for me, it was um, when 2005, when the series first returned and i'm at university and about a month beforehand is when it all exploded with doctor who's really coming back and the word is it's going to be amazing and there were three phone boxes on the road because my university was very spread out along the road three phone boxes don't to look like tardises with the you know rose and the christopher eccleston peering through the door the big advertising billboard with Rose and Chris Freckleson on that. I was just, it was phenomenal. It's like, what is this? This is doc, this is that thing I had to go to the back of the bookstore to find a version book for. A thing I had to effectively order Doctor Who books online because I couldn't find them in shops. What's happening? This is going to be huge. Well, even down to my level here locally, uh, my local LCS, my local comic shop, because uh, I I live in Port Ritchie, which is a little bit uh, north of Tampa. Uh, here in Florida, and even in there, they're carrying uh, o- over Christmas. You know, they had sonic screwdrivers, Doctor Who, uh, omnibuses, comics, figures. You know, it's it's even down into smaller cities. It's not just like Thomas. You said in New York, you saw it on on the side of a bus. It's even you know, it's it's really trickled down even to smaller markets. That's wild. It's just it's it's such a great time to be a Who fan for us in the United States. Again, mm-hmm. those are just like the ones like I said myself where we're so solitary. It's like we feel like we're part of a larger community well, now. When when they well, rebooted the whole thing, I remember they weren't showing it here for some reason. I don't know if that was just Rochester, but we had I was um, I had a cable access show and one of the guys who was in the on the station with me, he had a show that basically was a sci-fi show. But he was so mad that they weren't showing it on cable that he was downloading it off the internet and showing it on the um, public access channel. Oh, and really? Got away for it. That's the first place that I saw the the sort of new stuff, and I thought to myself, "Well, finally they've given Doctor Who a decent budget." And mm-hmm. and I knew as soon as, as as soon as Doctor Who had a decent budget, you know, it's all the stuff was there for mass appeal. It's just that you used to have to get over the fact that you're sort of watching a soap opera style budget, you know, and they actually got away with really good effects for what they had to do on video and stuff in those days. But you really had to engage a lot of extra animation or imagination to sort of fill in the blanks with this. And this one, like special effects had caught up so they could afford to do some CG and and to make it look like a modern TV show, you know, shot on film. And I, I knew that as if 
if it got out there, that people would go nuts for it, you know? If I remember correctly, Chris, the reason why there was such a big delay between the the broadcast everywhere else in the world and here in the United States is because the BBC was actually holding out for a broadcast network to pick it up. Mm. They had an offer right from the start from sci-fi, but they were like, no, we want we want a big network. Right, right. we do don't this. want just cable. I and always admired that guy for putting it on public access. I took some mm-hmm. brass balls. Yeah, I, see, at first I thought you meant you had a public access show, so I was. Just I did. Like, I did. That's Chris's how I world. Met this guy. Chris's world. Excellent. <laughs> it, 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 did it, you wear the pig mask on the, the show? The, I had a. I had the, a puppet was involved. Anyway, of course ah. it was. <laughs> <laughs> Just pot the rabbit, right? Yes. There's. There's. Yeah. yeah. There's. There's hours and hours and hours of that show on YouTube for anybody who could stomach it. <laughs> Well, just uh, real quick to bring us back, I'll wrap up Gallifrey 1. I do have one more story. There was, um, I haven't mentioned, I failed to mention, there's a bunch of people from Big Finish Audio there, including Nick Briggs, mm-hmm. who's the executive producer of Big Finish. He also does the voice of the Daleks on the show. Uh, Jason Hagaler, which is executive producer. Lisa Bowerman, who is just absolutely wonderful, does the voice of Bernice Summerfield, does a bunch of the directing. Uh, there's several other folks from Big Finish. During one of the panels, uh, I got to ask a question, and I raised my hand, and Nick Briggs called on me, and I just asked him a question about CDs versus downloads. And someone in the back of the room was like, I can't hear the question. So Nick Briggs goes, oh, you couldn't hear the question? Oh, he asked me to marry him. And implying that I had asked him to marry me. And this became a thing. Like, the panel just totally degenerated into about five minutes of Nick asking people in the audience who they would marry. And it was hysterical. I mean, people were laughing their asses off. And... Afterwards, I went up and got an autograph from Nick, and as I come up, he looks at me and goes, oh, it's my future husband. And uh, this became a running gag throughout the whole weekend that apparently I'm marrying Nick Briggs. So if you'd like to, we're registered at uh, W.H. Smith's. um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, How does your wife feel about that? She, I mean, she understands. I mean, I've, I've, I've been married now for almost ten years, and but you know, Doctor Who and I have been together thirty years. So. I don't know about this show, man. All this talk about beating off Irishmen and marrying men and running gags, and I don't know He's what's going on here. Dalek. You just yeah. want to be in bed on your honeymoon and just hear that coming at you. Oh, baby, I'm going to exterminate all over him. <laughs> oh yeah, don't I need to be Oswin? Sean, I think we need to oh, call right. Smith and get the now. Manly- <laughs> Hold on! Someone just mentioned brought Osmond into the discussion. That just made it interesting. Oh god! Yeah, no, that. that uh, as much I, as I, I loved his, Amy, and I loved voice. Amy, but that that girl got some curves. Osmond does. That girl's gorgeous. Oh yeah, <laughs> straight up. Chag, do you think I'm sexy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Put on that dress I like. Oh, does no. this dress make me look fat? Exfoliate. <laughs> Exfoliate. Oh, Lord. Jack, who are you talking to online? I apologize for what I've done to your show, Sean. <laughs> it, it, it was always hovering around this level. It just took that little push over the edge to get there. So, okay. There's this, there's this great thing called the theory of 11, which is when you put more than two guys together, they immediately revert to like the intelligence level of an 11-year-old. And uh, that's pretty much where we are. All we need next is fart jokes. And pretty much we've hit it all. Uh, we'll get there eventually. Sylvine yeah. will come in here somehow, I'm sure. Making a well, 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 once we get to... We're going to be talking a lot about a sewer and there's, you know... 
They do use sure gas that... to blow something up. Exactly, sure. Dave. That's where I was going. They use gas to blow out of the uh, out, out of the room at the end. That's true. <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> Perfect. Well, that 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 sounded like a heck of a lot of fun. Now, one of the things that I just wanted to comment on, you said that there are only 3,500 people at the Gallifrey One, and I think one of the big things, one of the big contentions there was, uh, why didn't they open it up to more people? Because the show did show out, sell out, and 3,500 people compared to like the big conventions like uh, San Diego and New York Comic Con, uh, the, those are huge. So... There was gonna, there was a thing where they said they might open it up to more people, but eventually they said no. They were going to try and keep it small. What do you think about that? Well, they talked about that at great lengths. Um, the guy who heads up the convention did during some of the general sessions, and the basic gist of it is, you know, if they if they go any bigger, they can't fit in the hotel space they're in. They don't want to go any larger because they like the hotel space they're in. They also like having sort of that smallish convention feel. And I, I can tell you from going to DragonCon every year, which is anywhere from fifty to eighty thousand, no one really knows for sure, mm-hmm. for tax re- for tax reasons, um, <laughs> that there really is a completely different sense at a convention at thirty five hundred versus fifty thousand. Um, it is a very small, intimate affair. It yeah, really it's, is. It's and, a difference between a party with your friends and Mardi Gras, basically. Yeah, but like. you know. Now I'll pull the veil back a little bit. You know, in my real life, I actually plan events large-scale events is what i do for a living and the, the the driver there though is revenue so it's like why wouldn't you open it up to more to get more revenue so there's a strange model going on there where they decide to keep it at a finite size which thereby just cuts any potential revenue growth so you're not I think about the, the money man yes it is uh, I think in the long run, uh, they're going to have to figure out something, whether it be a larger exhibit hall maybe, because then you can get revenue from the exhibitors. They've got to figure out another way to get more revenue. It's just simple because expenses go up every year. It's just that there's no way around that. So they've got to figure out something in the long run, but they, they said they want to stay at that hotel and they want to stay around that size. So if you can, guys, even if you're just sort of thinking about it, go buy your ticket right now because you can always sell it to somebody. You can, they have a reselling policy. You can sell it later on. Buy your ticket now, and then just figure out whether you got the money to go down the line. Because that's what I'm going to do this year. Because I had so much fun that I really want to go next year. It's in LA. If, it's in LA. Yep. I don't know if I can afford it again. Uh, although if we pack all six of us in a hotel room, that would save a lot of expenses. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're even thinking about it, buy your ticket because they're going to sell out pretty soon. Six of us. Cool. There's seven of us. <laughs> I wasn't counting, Thomas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pretty usual. Okay, well, that that's really interesting. Shag, thanks for talking about, uh, you know, I'm glad that you got to make it to this, and uh, thanks for letting us know about this. That's really cool. And, yeah, if if anyone wants to do this, yeah, definitely check out online. Is, do they have, like, a site specifically uh, for yeah, Gallifrey One? Gallifrey1.com. Okay. Yeah, go check it out. If you guys want to go, uh, that'd be the place to go. But uh, after, you know, since we've, uh, you know, since Shag has monopolized uh, most of the time on the show so far, <laughs> we're going to we're going to allow me to monopolize a little time as I give you the synopsis of the show that we're going to be covering this time. The Talons of Wang Chang. Uh, the Talons of Wang Chang, of course, aired in uh, the UK starting around February. Well, it started on February 26th and ended April 2nd of 1977. Uh, it was episode six of series 14. 
Uh, the writer this time out was Robert Holmes. The director was David Maloney. The producer was Philip Hinchcliffe. And uh, the cast include uh, Tom Baker as the Doctor, Louise Jameson as Leela, John Bennett as Lee, Lee Sen Chang, Christopher Benjamin as Henry Gordon Jago, Trevor Baxter as Professor Lightfoot, Michael Spice as Wing Chiang slash Marcus Greel, and Deep Roy as Mr. Sin. Wanting to show his companion Leela what life was like on 19th century Earth, the Doctor arrives where else but London. He plans to take her to the Palace Theatre, where the Asian magician Lee Sen Chang is performing to enraptured crowds. Chang's feats are astonishing, but what's more amazing is his act is... Try that again. But what is more amazing than his act is his creepy ventriloquist dummy, Mr. Sin, who almost seems alive. After the performance, the theater manager, Henry Jago, congratulates Chang's on his acts of ledger domain, asking how he manages such trickery. Chang simply replies, Ancient Chinese secret, and slips a box of Calgon beneath his robe. Chang is then confronted by a jilted husband who claims that Chang had something to do with the disappearance of his wife, to whom which Chang rebuts the man's claims with some flowery Chinese philosophy. But after the cabbie has left, he looks to Mr. Sin, who nods in agreement that the husband should be taken care of, permanently. We return to the doctor and Leela, who are beset upon by Chinese thugs who are trying to kill the aforementioned cabbie. The duo take on the group with the doctor being particularly badass until the sound of a police whistle causes them to beat cheeks, save one that the doctor trips up and Leela captures. The group is then taken into police custody for questioning. When they arrive at the station, Chang has been called in to act as interpreter, but in all actuality, he is the one who set the thugs to assassinate the cavity. Chang secretly gives the thug a pill made of concentrated scorpion venom to take, to take, causing him to drop dead instantly. Upon examination after Chang's departure, the doctor discovers that the thug was a member of an ancient cult who followed the god Wang Chiang. The Doctor and Leela accompany the body of the thug to the local mortuary, where they meet Professor Lightfoot, who is performing the autopsy. The, doc the Doctor discovers that Lightfoot is the owner of a strange Chinese cabinet that has never been opened. He also hears tale of numerous women that have gone missing, as well as the body of the cabbie who has strange bite marks on his body. Bites that look like they were made by some form of giant rodent. We're then shown that Chang is actually working for someone claiming to be Wang Chiang, who is having the Chinese thugs bring in women so he can siphon life forces off of them to regenerate himself. He's also in search of the quote-unquote time cabinet, which the professor has in his procession. As the series goes on, Wing Chiang manages to steal the cabinet capture and capture Lightfoot and Jago, who are in possession of the bag, which had the key to the cabinet. Luckily, the doctor has taken the key and used it as a bargaining chip so he can free Jago, Lightfoot, and the captured women that Wing Chiang was holding and trying to suck the life out of. In the end, Chang is revealed to be a war criminal from the 51st century named Mark Magnus Creel, who used the time cabinet and its Zygma energy to transport him back in time, but left him disfigured in the process. In the final showdown, as Mr. Sin is blasting our heroes with the dragon laser, the Doctor tosses Creel into the life-sucking machine and he disintegrates into nothingness. Sin then jumps Leela and the Doctor does a little dwarf tossing. With the crisis averted, Leela and the Doctor head back into the TARDIS after Lightfoot and Jago have tried to teach her about the intricacies of drinking tea. The duo watches the blue police box disappears, something that Jago comments that even the great Lee Sin Chang would be impressed by. <laughs> that is, if he hadn't been half-eaten by giant rats and died in a haze of opium smoke. The end. That's how I want to go out. Yeah, well, uh, 
I was going to mention the whole opium thing. I don't know uh, if that would be a big selling point for you, Chris, and wanting to watch this show. I, this this show hit every Asian stereotype. <laughs> I forgot how much how much like oh honorable sort of the step and fetch it, you know. Yeah, we might as well go ahead and show. drop that at the beginning of the show. How <laughs> how almost horrible. You know, and I don't think to, to some I extent it was, it was their awesome. fault. <laughs> well, well it, it, the thing you got to look at it has it, it's meant to be a yeah. period piece. It's meant to be uh, a, a basically a distillate. Every one of the the Philip Hinchcliffe stories is Hinchcliffe's take on a different genre, mm-hmm. a different style of horror. This was his fan of the opera slash Fu Manchu takeoff. Mm-hmm. With a little bit of Chan and a little bit of everything. Yeah, and a little bit of Sherlock Holmes. Of, yeah. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. It reminded me of the Firesign Theater parody of Sherlock Holmes that they did called The Giant Rat of Sumatra. Mm-hmm. And it well, I mean, and has such all the racism and the refer the refer, referring to the, the yellow and yellow skins and the chinks and yada this and that and the other thing mm-hmm. is totally true to the period to the that period yeah well i think the racist elements people were angry about wasn't so much like the language and stuff it's just that you know the one primary chinese character was played by an englishman in makeup mm-hmm. which very well the makeup, makeup. I, I think well i think the makeup's great but anyway and then uh and you're wrong as usual so and then the other thing is anyone who was genuinely chinese that appeared in the show was a, a basically a thug for the tong so that's where i think a lot of the the racist complaints came from is that there were no genuine chinese people portrayed in a good light in the show Yes, and they were always referred to. It. Nobody ever said. I don't think anybody ever used the word Chinaman, which was nice. But <laughs> they well, were always referred Chinese to as the Chinese. Was, those yeah, Jacob just you know pretty much disparagingly talked about them in that manner. But uh, well, the, the, the line that always sticks out to me is the the joke that Lee Sin Chang makes <laughs> in the, the stage during the performance. One of us is yellow. <laughs> yeah, that was the one thing that kind of pushed it over the line. There was uh, Lee Sin Chang on the uh, stage and his use of "tlicks" yeah. for my next "tlick." Yeah. Oh, but that's Lord, him that playing up. Yes. I first encountered the story through the novelization, um, the target novelization, and it's made very clear in that that anytime he's on stage, Chang is playing up to what the you know jolly old English people want to see from this foreigner on stage and he's he's kind of almost insulting them with what he's doing but it's very much it's an act for that yeah and every joke every joke he makes is is he's doing it because that's what they expect not that's because that's what he'd actually do with it and it definitely comes through in bennett's performance that there is the the personal uh persona and the public persona of lee senchak yeah Mm -hmm. and there's definitely a little bit of disdain for the for the audience you could you could tell you know I'm hey I'm hanging around with gods and you mm-hmm. know you guys are you guys are snickering at my accent. I like the Chinese proverb the uh, oh man who go too fast step in bear trap. That's not a proverb. That's a threat. <laughs> <laughs> now you guys were talking about um, Phil Pinchcliffe uh, packing everything into this episode. You know the 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 Sherlock Holmes the. 
the Asian, you know, uh, mysteries, all those types of things. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, he was trying to put everything in because this was his last story. Actually. Yeah, this this is his, his farewell. Although, maybe you know this, Shag. I'm not quite sure. Was uh, Hara Fang Rock commissioned under him? You know, I don't know, but you know, so that was that was a Graham Williams story. That was the first Graham Williams story. Okay, because all these years I've thought that was a Philip Hinchcliffe one. So, so did I. Certainly feels like it. I would be surprised if that wasn't one that had already been put underway by Philip Hinchcliffe. And and by the way, speaking of which, uh, do you guys know who the series production unit manager was on this? <laughs> oh yes, his first of many many credits. Yes, the very first Mr. credit Jonathan. on Doctor. Do it. John Nathan Turner. That's right. Uh, Turner. (laughs) JNT. So, interesting. All right, since Mm. we're doing behind-the-scenes stuff, there's a couple other behind-the-scenes stuff I wanted to mention real quick. The conductor um, of the orchestra. Dudley Simpson. Bingo. Dudley Simpson. The guy does all the music. Isn't that cool? Makes sense. Supposedly, he wasn't really conducting anything. It was all, you know, he was just, you know, doing the motions, and the music was piped in or piped in afterwards or added in in post. But yeah, it was nice to see that he was, you know, chosen as the conductor to do the show, you know, in the in, in the actual episode. Yeah, that was so cool. And uh, here's something I found interesting. I did a little research on it because, you know, we, we talk about how popular Doctor Who used to be. And now we're just saying, you know, how Doctor Who seems to be even more popular nowadays. Just to give it some perspective, when uh, Talons of Wang Chining first aired, over the six episodes, their audience ranged anywhere from 9.3 million to 11.4 million. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now you fast forward, you know, what, 30, 40 years to, I just try to find an episode that I thought would probably be one of the most watched episodes it would be the end of time part two, which is David Tennant's yeah. last episode. I think it's fair to say mm-hmm. probably every doctor who fan watched that episode. Their ratings were 12.27 million. So one of the most important episodes in doctor who's history uh, end of time got 12.2 whereas this thing just another episode of the week got 11.4 shows yeah. you how many people were watching it back then and and nowadays admittedly there you know your attention's drawn because you got a million channels to choose from you didn't back then that's what i was about to point out yeah but yeah the, the numbers UK, that you have the choice of three yeah and but the numbers it. are similar you know it's just kind of interesting mm-hmm. this, the other thing i mean tom baker him... was at the height of his popularity at this time um and the series was as strong as it would ever be, the rot hadn't kicked in, as it were. Because you, you go forward to the end of his reign, that last season, uh, Nathan Turner's first season, and you can see the ratings decline kicking in then as it would sort of drift down to about 5 million as it would stay for the uh, last chunk of the 80s. Yeah. Um, it's really sad, though, because apparently there was things being set up in this storyline. That we're going to carry through, primarily the uh, the whole relationship that Hinchcliffe intended the Doctor to have with Leela, which was that of you know pupil and you know, teacher and, and pupil. Well, I heard that it was supposed to be somewhat like uh, what Shaw's Pygmalion, Am I right? Yeah, you know, it was basically uh, the Doctor being the sort of oh I can't remember what the character is from the Professor Pygmalion. Higgins. Yeah, Professor Higgins yeah. teaching uh, Eliza Doolittle, you know, how, what it's like to be a refined person. And you can kind of see how they're doing that. And Leela throughout the entire episode is not in her leather 
Amazon warrior type skin. She's in uh, Victorian. Well, as <laughs> yeah, I was disappointed too. But there are parts in the show which make me happy as well but uh, she was in uh, <laughs> traditional victorian clothing uh her uh, she was made up to be the sort of progression of the eliza doodle character i yeah. like that i mean the thing i loved about and this is something that, that i don't think is really a, 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 a well-kept secret was that tom baker as brilliant as he was as an actor has always been shall we say a little on the eccentric side <laughs> yeah. no and he no. never really liked the idea of a companion and he always got he got bored very easily from what i understand and he did not want a companion after sarah jane left and this the idea of well this is this is a primitive you'll be teaching a primitive you'll be teaching intrigued him which is why it's so sad that after these three stories under hinchcliffe that leela has she becomes just a grunting doll baby you jane me tarzan thing Yeah, she shows well, okay. a lot of intelligence in this. This yeah, well, that's the brilliance of of Leela is that has set up in the in uh, the face of evil. She is the smartest person in the room on her planet, but she's living in a society that a doesn't recognize that, and b does not encourage that sort of intelligence in people. Which is what I think the doctor responds to. Following up on what you just said a second ago, Thomas, I had just read a little while ago that apparently Leela was going to be written out at the end of this season. Because as you said, Baker wanted to travel alone. But Graham Williams convinced Louise Jameson to stay on. She, she was a little reluctant because of her relationship with Tom, because Tom was a bit, you know, standoffish. And those brown uh, contact yeah. lenses, she hated to wear those brown contact lenses. So mm-hmm. Williams uh, said, I tell you what, we'll get rid of the contact lenses if you'll stay on. And she agreed to stay on, which I want to say is the end of horrifying rock is when her eye color changes yes yeah that's was all in purposeful so it, interesting to see that they were you know because hinchcliffe had told tom baker yeah we'll get rid of her we'll 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 get, we'll get you traveling by yourself by the end of the season so now i wanted to ask something of uh dave and steven uh over here in the United States, we got most of the stuff on PBS. We got it at the time. Now, I know you guys are a bit younger than most of us on the thing, and you probably didn't see these at the, I'm assuming you didn't see these on their original air dates. How did you guys <laughs> uh, watch these shows? Did you watch them on video, or were these in pretty much constant rotation like Star Trek is over here? I'm pretty sure that they would have repeated them. I This is the first time I've actually caught up on it. Um, I know... I, used to watch them on, I think it was Sunday afternoons. They used to show them on BBC Two, um, but I never got this far because unfortunately started doing something else on Sunday afternoons. And then later on, <clears throat> excuse me, they started showing them on another channel, the UK Gold. And they would have had, basically every Sunday morning, they would have had a full series kind of showing. Um, say it would have been Towns of Wen Chang next week, and then it would have had whatever the next one was, and it would have just shown blocks of it for the whole of the Sunday morning, which was always quite fun. But still, I always seem to miss this one. <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> um, yeah. The BBC have never repeated this. Oh. Um, shocking. Is the, the amount of uh, Doctor Who repeats on the BBC are infinitesimally small. Um, there was the, the, They repeated Evil of the Daleks uh, as part of Incontinuity, uh, when they bring when Patrick brings Zoe on board, she goes. He goes. Well, I'm going to warn you about what's going on. And then he shows her Evil of the Daleks. 
um, which is just phenomenal that they did that. They did the fireplace of Doctor Who in 1981, um, with one story from each Doctor, with the Logopolis representing the fifth Doctor, because it was to launch Peter Davison. In the 90s, they tried to repeat, and they did for a little while some uh, John Pertwee stuff. That's when I first saw, for instance, Green Death, which and Planet of the Daleks, which was my first ever Doctor Who's that I saw. Uh, but from Tom Baker, they've repeated, in my lifetime, Genesis of the Daleks and Pyramids of Mars, and that's it. Really? That's, that's the summary, because I know over here, at least when I was watching it on uh, PBS, on our public station... Hmm. The Tom Baker Doctor Who serial was in constant rotation. Mm-hmm. They that would was, usually oh, yeah. do yeah. at least. They would usually do at it least. It wouldn't get the ratings. Um, I've <laughs> read Doctor Who magazines from the time when they they'd announced, "Oh, the BBC wants to do a season of repeats." Brilliant. And then after four or five stories, the BBC would have to say, "Look, we're just not getting the ratings that we need to justify showing it at prime time. We don't want to show it late at night because it's not what it was intended for." And they pull it off. So I first saw this on VHS in like 90, I want to say 93, 94. I would have been about 10 or 11. And then uh, I haven't seen it since until I picked the DVD out of my Regenerations box set, which for some reason I'd never actually watched, even though I'd owned it for a year, (laughs) and watched it two nights ago. But I've read that book, that novelization, over and over and over. It was one of my favorites um, going through it. It was the last one to be reissued, uh, the very last Target imprint, imprint novel. Uh, novelization, sorry. So they issued a whole bunch in the early 90s. Was, doing, um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Wayne. Uh, was there any major change since, since you've read the novel so many times? Was there any major differences between that and the and the show? I'm, I'm just not curious. Made, it, was pr- it was pretty faithful. I think they threw in just a team, not very much, but a little more detail about uh, where Wang Chang came from. Um, so there was just a little bit more about who he was as the Butcher of Brisbane. Um, and I love, I just love that idea that he's from the future. The Doctor fought in a war against him. One of my favourite concepts. The Doctor's not a fighting person. Yes, Tom Baker and uh, John Pope, they might have a bit of one-on-one, hand-to-hand combat. But the idea of the Doctor fighting on the front lines of a war is just huge and phenomenal. I love it. Um, but yeah, it, it's pretty faithful. It's just very, very well written. Um, who was it? Terence Dix who did. That? Oh, it was Terence Dix. I was going to yeah. say, yeah, they probably didn't yeah. add a lot because it was Terence Dix. I mean, he was a machine cranking out those novelizations, and his belief was yeah. always not to add to the story, but just try to ca- encapsulate it so that the reader at home could sort of fill in the gaps and obviously give it better special mm-hmm. effects. This was still on the yeah. subject of um, behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, I know that. Hinchcliffe has said that the that Holmes's initial script had instead of Magnus Greel the master, really has the see, villain. See, that's and what I'm I wondering. Kind of I throw this out to to those of you who are knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think uh, that would I have hurt, you know, hurt or helped the script? I think it might have actually hurt it, especially yes. considering that the so. master had been around mm. in his fried egg incarnation. I, I agree completely. It would have hurt the story. I mean, because it just would have been. It would have been another of the master's plots. Instead, it was new, it was fresh, it was different. I'm sorry, well, Stephen, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, um, I was just trying to find my copy of About Time uh, for the Fourth Doctor, and I don't have it in this room, which is annoying. Um, yeah, I, I think what makes the story really work is the fact that it is, it's a unique villain. And when I say unique, not just that he only appeared in this story, but the concept of him being a fugitive from the future is so unique with Doctor It's surprising that it's not happened more often. Mm-hmm. And for 1977, 
yeah, you know, when you find that out as watching it first time, that must have been a real mind blower. Yeah, I I think the master would have been too powerful of a, I I like this because all the villains were sort of portrayed and you sort of went through layers of them. You kept peeling back layers of villains and it was like behind this villain is actually a supernatural villain. But then you would find out that there was really a a scientific explanation for everything. And behind, you know, once he took everybody's mask off, everything was really like cut down to size. You know, you know, Wang Chiang ends up, you know, pathetic. And, you know, I was fooled by this guy. Then, you know, once once Magnus is exposed, he's just, you know, he's he's on the way out. He's circling the drain and. Mr. Sin, you can just unplug him, take pull out his, you know, fuse, and he's done. So the the master would have been a little too daunting, I think, for this. I like yeah. that everybody sort of got the wind taken out of them one by one in this. Yeah, this was as this was the first time I actually got to see it. I did think it was going to be the master at one point. I was going, is it going to be? And I wasn't disappointed when it turned out not to be. I did prefer this way around. Sorry. Yeah. One of the things that one of the things that I liked about this, and it's kind of harkens back to the first episode we did with City of Death. This has sort of the same, well, not really feel, but the same sort of concept behind it. You've got a person who's a time traveler, who's or who at least is using time travel to uh, get his machinations up. Uh, you're getting someone who's working with failed time travel, and he's also got. Uh, the same sort of crony henchman who's uh, doing all the work for him. And this, in this case, it's Lee Sin Chang and the other uh, case in city of time was the professor. So I like the fact that these two separate episodes both sort of deal with the sort of same concepts. It's a, you know, it's a neat sort of symmetry that we've got going through here. Uh, well, both the of them, tra- I think, time travels, really well. time travels, a tricky business when you use, when you do that, like, you, like you're going with Sean is because like sometimes time travel can be wretched like in the lost in space theatrical film or it can be done really well like these two these two stories and when it's done well it, in doctor who especially it's great because i mean that's where doctor who really can excel is when doctor when time travel is done intelligently mm-hmm. so i'm that's a good connection to put between those two episodes hey don't pick on lost in space i love the movie and i am the <laughs> really? monkey who pushes the button but uh it is pretty ridiculous Remember for what some my reason, name is. The song's been stuck in my head for the past day or so. I wonder why. <laughs> Which song? The Apollo 440 song. Oh, Sorry. okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I loved that when it was uh, came out first on. Yeah, the, the the song was good. The movie average. But uh, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and talk about some of the characters in the show. We did some behind the scenes stuff. Uh, I I really enjoyed the characterizations of a lot of these people, especially mm. we might. Uh, I want to talk about Leela, basically. I think she was... <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Leela. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, she never did anything for me. You are you are a failed person. It might have been my age at if the you time. Yeah. If you don't like a woman running around in a leather mini skirt, I don't know... Well, a leather mini dress, I don't know what is wrong with you, sir. Especially that, that the sewer scene. Me. Oh, I, oh, God, I, yes, the I, sewer scene. Supposedly, I, they were... Go ahead, Shaq. Well, I just I gotta agree with Tom. I don't know if I said this off air or on air, but I gotta agree with Thomas to some extent. Like her first few early episodes, I think she's scorchingly hot, but very quickly. By the time you get to the next season with Graham yeah. Williams, her hair is all fried out. She's looking uh-huh. old and like some. She partied too hard between seasons or something. I don't it's know a, what happened. A part of that is thing. just. I mean, Williams makes her wear that like cloth uniform that's supposed to be the leather 
Tankini thing. I mean, and and the way that she's written from there on in, from the, in the under Graham Williams, is so bad. It's not the same character who's so engaging in this and in Robots of Death and in Face of Evil. Mm-hmm. So just watch those first few episodes, Thomas, a few more times, and it might, you know, you might hit puberty and it might happen for you. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, especially <laughs> the uh, the sewer scenes. Uh, supposedly uh, the uh, clingy white uh, thing she was wearing uh, was kind of a point of contention because it point? did. Oh, yeah. Point. Yes, there was a point. Oh, uh, two of them, I, in fact. Uh, <laughs> I, I could see my mom coming. Hey, what are you doing in there? I'm watching Doctor Who. Oh, don't, don't, don't come in. Don't come in. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, supposedly the editor of the show said he was going to tastefully edit that. And uh, I think the first time that uh, Louise Jameson actually saw the scene, she was uh, quite horrified to see uh, that she was a bit more exposed than she thought she would She's be. She's pretty so. exposed. And didn't at the beginning when he looks at the poster of Wang Chang. I had to watch it a couple times. I was trying to figure out what that line was. And this is another thing where we, you get the difference between because this is something that wouldn't be said on like American TV, but did he say that he was hoping to catch a little tits? No, no. He was hoping no. to catch a little tit who was a, a performer. <laughs> oh. On the British <laughs> See, because then I thought, okay, Only you, Chris. Not, we actually do. No, no. You know, I, catch a little tit. So I thought maybe it might have been, you know, a little. I had the same note. I had the same note. I'm the like, Randy that's Doctor, bit. apparently. That's that's a different <sighs> year they'd be going to, I guess. That's funny. But then we also have the characters of uh, Doctor Lightfoot and uh, uh, Jago, which Woo! are the these great are just injustice because Robert Holmes had written a pilot. For a spinoff back in 1979. Oh, my Lord. uh, That would have featured Uh, Jaco and Lightfoot as uh, a a crime-fighting team together in Victorian London. And I would so watch the shit out of that show. Here's the thing. Um, It didn't quite get that far. It's not an injustice because it probably wouldn't have been done that well back then. And now... The Big Finish audios, I, I, I don't know if you guys know or not, but Big Finish has produced something like six series now of Jago and Lightfoot audio adventures. Now, are and they portrayed by the, the oh, character yeah. actors? Oh, oh, yes, they are. Yeah. And I, I've only I've only working my way through the first box set. And, guys, it is an absolute joy. It's probably yeah, hilarious, whether, right? It's so they are. The chemistry the, between Baxter and um, Benjamin. The two of them are gold together. Yeah, they are. And these guys are like 80 years old now. And um, they are still sharp as attack. Jago is still just as funny as he should be. Lightfoot is still the straight man. Guys, I, I, they are some of my favorite audios. And I've listened to hundreds of Big Finish audios. So I highly recommend you pick up Jago and Lightfoot let from me, Big Finish. Whether you get the CDs or get the digital downloads, you got to check them out. Let me throw this out for discussion. Do you think Lightfoot had a thing for Leela? Hmm. It was hard to say if it was paternal or something, but yeah, there was definitely right. a connection between the two of them. I, yeah. I think he, I, think I don't think paternal. he really had designs on her. I think he more sort of wanted was interested in that hmm. sort of like British explorer type of way, like anthropological way, and that he kind of liked her and would have liked to have taken her under his wing and like shown her around. 
yeah well harking back to the whole uh thing that we did with the pygmalion with uh with that uh, it yeah it seemed he seems a lot like that sort of character that he's he's fascinated by the way she acts you know her her sort of uh savage brutality especially you know in the dining room thing where she just picks yeah, up oh, like, i love that man. moment where he just he's decides like, uh, to discard the know, silverware yeah, do you want to use yeah. a knife? And she just jabs it with a knife. And of course, he's so polite. He decides, well, I'm a gentleman. I'll, I won't embarrass her. So I'll go ahead and eat the same way. And it's just, it's really wonderful. I like that. But he I seems like to that. Be enjoying it so much, though. That's yeah. the thing I love. His his I, his character could be that standard. Oh, what was what was um, is it Ruggles or something like that? There was a. Just sort of a stereotype British explorer character, you know, the yeah. paternalistic. Bigel. Yes, what? and he could have sort of been like that, but he, they, they, all the characters in this, they put just that extra little bit of depth to him, where you, this guy, you know, you couldn't tell whether he wanted to change Leela or he just appreciated it as a breath of fresh air or a combination of the two. I couldn't see him having designs on her because he seemed to be like bound by the laws of a gentleman you know yeah yeah so he he would you know he has definite lines that he wouldn't cross and and that but you could tell he has a very 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 sharp mind and uh he could have been a bumbler and he's sort of a little bumbling in it and And i think that's why the doctor trusts him so much Mm -hmm. so quickly instantly yeah they're like buddies instantly he's just like all right i'll leave leela with you and this and that you're right well, part of that, too, is, I mean, Lightfoot's role in this story was supposed to be that of Dr. Watson. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's Professor Lightfoot. I mean, that mm-hmm. Professor Lightfoot, Dr. Watson, right there. Yeah. He so, has a housekeeper called Mrs. Even Hudson? has the housekeeper name. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. he does. Oh, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, just on a quick uh, side note, I um, one time when I was watching PBS, I was looking for Doctor Who, and I'm flipping through. Okay. Hey, look. All right. It's Tom Baker. Is this Towns of Wing Cheyenne? Wait a minute. And it was actually him playing Sherlock Holmes in uh, Hounds of the Baskervilles. And I was like, awesome. This is great. You know, Uh, we we talked about uh, him wearing the Deerstalker and everything in this episode. Turns out, I didn't realize this. I was reading up. This is the only episode where his scarf doesn't appear. Mm. Mm. I didn't realize that. They wanted to. uh, One of the ideas that Hinge have had, if he had carried on, was that the Doctor would have adopted this garb as his. Uh, costume going forward. Hmm. Yep. I don't. I don't uh, know if that. You know. I like the. Stand. I like the costume. I think it works for this episode because this is very, very much a Sherlock Holmes story or a Sherlock oh, yeah. Holmes like story. But I think uh, the iconic nature of the the hat and the scarf mm-hmm. and the coat, you know, propelled Doctor Who, especially the Tom Baker Doctor Who, throughout history. Whenever you ask someone who's uh, just a, just generally knowledgeable about Doctor Who, they always think the hat and the scarf. In fact, if you watch yeah. you know shows like The Simpsons, when they're referencing Doctor Who, it'll always be the Tom Baker iteration of it. So mm-hmm. I think the hat, and uh, uh, although it's strong it's, showing on PBS, isn't it? And it's also just such a it's the I mean the Simpsons have to do everything in just visual shorthand. That's the quickest way you're gonna visually, except for a TARDIS. You know, say Doctor yeah. Who. You know, the the two things you could show a TARDIS, a Dalek, three things. Okay, three things. <laughs> Four <laughs> things. No one expects, no one expects Doctor. <laughs> 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 no one expects the Dalek Inquisition. 
This was the first Doctor Who I ever saw in my life. It was on a PBS fun drive, and they did the thing where they hacked all the episodes together. Yeah. And uh, and I remember, you know, the the this was a big deal on PBS because it, it got a lot of money, in, and the host was was building it up, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to see this science fiction show. I'd read about it, and he kept calling it the um, – cabinet of dr wang chiang oh geez all through all through and and they got a phone call in and it was total comic book guy you know this is the talons of wang chai you're getting it incorrect and and they drive ever yes exactly (laughs) so Um, did you guys hear how peter david influenced pbs and doctor who no what's that No. Say again. Okay. Uh, Peter David wrote an introduction for a book called I Who Volume Two, which was a, a guide to Doctor Who novels and audios. Did you really? And in yeah, I've it's got a that great book. book. How funny. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure it's that. It's not on my bookshelf right now, but okay. Um, he wrote the introduction and he talked about watching one night. He was a he knew of Doctor Who and enjoyed it and was a fan. He's watching PBS one night and it's uh, he's waiting for the next show to come on and there's the manager doing his typical pledge drive he's desperate for money the phones are sitting there not ringing everyone supposed to be answering the phone is bored out of their minds and um he's listing all the shows that he wants to buy if he gets enough money and he just throws doctor Who out there like it's number eight on a list of 30 and uh peace david phones up uh whilst they're showing another show and asks to speak to the manager and he manages to get through and says look not for nothing, but I, it, I'm going to give you some money if you can assure me it's going to be used to buy Doctor Who. And also, if you mention Doctor Who, I think there will be more people calling in. And the next time it goes back to the manager and he's he's going, he says, and one of the shows we're interested in buying is Doctor Who. Like, he, he builds it up a little bit. Then he goes on to talk about the others, but a phone rings in the background and they start getting money. And he's and you can actually, apparently he could see the look of surprise on the operator's face. Like, what is this magical ringing box on the table next to me? Yeah, the only thing he talks about is Doctor Who. And suddenly there's no mention of the fact they're going to buy Bride's Hair Revisited and show Monty Python. It's just all about Doctor Who. And they, it's one of the best nights they've ever had. And this, yeah, this is in New York. It's just because David happened to call him and say, yeah, yeah, I think this Doctor Who will make you some money. <laughs> I uh, I had some friends who worked the PBS pledge drives here in Florida, and uh, what the thing is, that, remember how they'd go to the pledge break and the phones would just be ringing like crazy? Well, turns out what a lot of that was was them calling each other, yeah, just to make just to make the phone ring to give the appearance of activity. So it's sort of like hearing slot machines go ding 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 ding. You know, right. it makes you want to pledge. No one so. wants to go first, but if you see somebody else doing it, it's like okay, it's okay for me to go. Yeah. All those Doctor Who tote bags are going to be gone if I don't get my pledge in. Scott and I used to be so awful about prank calling those because you could watch Aww. the prank call come in. Not during Doctor Who oh. as much, but yeah, whatever. But during PBS for sure, especially oh, when like the Cub call. Scouts were there or something, it was ruthless. We used to prank call the the Home Shopping Network all the time. Oh God! <laughs> Getting on air oh. would be the would be the crown jewel of that. <laughs> My favorite was always when I would call up and try to get it on this, and then when they when the, the host would pick up, and go, "Hi, it's the devil. Keep up the good work." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the talents. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know something we haven't mentioned is um, the writer of this episode, one Robert of the best Holmes. Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes. Mm-hmm. I was about to get with him. Yeah, yeah, the probably the best television writer of Doctor Who. 
And he always was a guy who knew how to create great and vivid characters. Mm, he, he had a reputation across the years of, in almost all his scripts, you'd have two characters, a double act that would just bounce off of each other, no matter what the <laughs> setting or how it was. And you know, no prize for guessing who that is in this one. <laughs> yeah, um, but you can see that almost all the way through to his last scripts for the Sixth Doctor, there are these that a couple of characters who just bounce and their dialogue sparkles, and it, it is fantastic to watch. But yeah, good old Robert Holmes. Uh, I think arguably without him, Doctor Who universe would be a lot less rich. Just just to read off some of the ones he's written, folks: um, Spearhead from Space and Terror of the Autons. To uh, mm-hmm. Patch, I'm sorry. Um, John Pertwee. Uh, John Pertwee. John Pertwee, thank you. Yeah. John Pertwee, Auton yeah. stories. Now, I'm not going to name them all, because some of these aren't awesome, but The Time Warrior, The First Centauran Story, The Ark in Space, Pyramids of Mars, Brains of Morbius, Deadly Assassin, The Ryboss Operation, and Power of Crawl, Caves of Andrazani. I mean, these are all phenomenal episodes that are very popular, and if you see any of these like top-ranking polls, right. these stories continuously score high. And, Even uh, today, yeah. the the uh, speech that Tom Baker gives at the towards the end of the first episode of Ark in Space is one of my favorite Doctor moments. Yeah. Oh, the, the and, uh, Homo sapiens. Yeah. Pretty much it beats new series episodes. Uh, 2009, Doctor Who magazine did a poll, what's the best Doctor Who story of all time? And Caves won. Yeah, and, and if you look at so. um, well, Outpost Gallifrey, which before the new series came back, was the Doctor Who online source. It was Out- yeah. Outpost Gallifrey. They had a poll in 2003 for the 40th anniversary of Doctor Who, and Talons of Wang Chang won as the best story. Mm. I mean, it's also, the things he's introduced he, 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 he's the creator of Time Lord Society basically um, he named the planet he created oh, yeah. the idea that, that um, everything you saw in Deadly Assassin which then became Time Lord Society and arguably a lot less well handled by anyone else who wrote it um, Sontarans, how great was that when Rose was first broadcast and at the end in the credits it just says um, the Autons created by Robert Holmes, that as a fan made me very very happy to see that that they were shouting out to the to the right people, and yeah, I think he's the probably for a deceased guy. He's been credited more times in the new series than anyone. <laughs> yeah, passed away in '86. We lost a we lost a great one there in the middle of writing the conclusion to a trial of a time lord, which is one of the reasons why it makes no sense because he lot, nobody knew what he was planning, uh, and they were scrambling to finish scripts when nobody knew where he was going with it. Hmm. So I think we were talking about characters. Yes, yes. I know that there's a favorite character of yours, Shag, and I'm not surprised that you want to talk about. I a sense hagged that's out where old, we were heading. Yes, the old one by the river. We're talking about maybe uh, the giant rat. No, the old woman. The old woman. Oh, the old woman! Oh my gosh! So the woman who is referred to simply has ghoul. In the credits. <laughs> is that what she's called Ghoul? I couldn't this, figure yeah. out who they're referencing. The single cool. greatest character find of 1977, okay. folks. Okay. The crazy, down by the river street lady. She was brilliant. She is standard for every one of the psychotic cockneys who would always find the dead bodies in every Hammer horror film. <laughs> now, <laughs> supposedly, she was actually a, a trained actress and she was on. Uh, uh, she started on some of the masterpiece theater things. She was in upstairs, downstairs. So she wasn't yeah. just the crazy, psychotic, you know, street lady. She was actually a, a well-rounded professional actress. Sean, but stop yeah, talking. Stop talking, Sean. Sean, you're, oh, Sean, you're ruining it. You're ruining it, Sean. They found her on the streets. 
I'm telling you, it had to. They filled her okay. full of liquor and, and that way. And let her go, yeah. yeah. Chris That's is right. Look her up. February 1996 was an English actress who's best remembered for performances as Miss Roberts in 1970s oh. ITP television drama Upstairs Downstairs. No, she was a street lady. They took her dentures and they filled her full of <laughs> wild turkey. She also appeared in Danger Man, Dixon of Doc's Green, Z Cards, The Prisoner, The I'm, Avengers, The Sweeney, I'm sorry. You're, you're, Lake Seven, The Tidy Detective, Minder, Rentagost. Terry all right, all right. Reading that, you're reading that from the same. You're reading that from the same website that claims there was a Superman four. I'm sorry, you're just you're making <laughs> shit up. Oh, okay. I'm to face um, reality, Shag. They're never yep. bringing back the motocross daredevil. <laughs> and your bloody fool was a trained actor. Oh, no, I was uh, so waiting for that to happen. She, for, she was. For she was the uh, best. Minor character, other you know, her and Duggan. I want to see a series of her and Duggan oh just traveling through time. Oh my god, there was sort of a show like that in America. It was a spin off of Gunsmoke with the with the old drunk lady <laughs> and her traveling companion. But I love how this woman didn't utter a single legible word. It was all just like, Aries, I'm going But you can tell it was a joy. She was just enjoying the whole bloated He's corpse. He's the Victorian being... England equivalent of that old prospector in all the old Republic. <laughs> yes. She's the Gabby Hayes of uh, English. Sorry, you're getting a bad, doing a bad prospector accent. Um, and, can, can I talk and, about my oh. favorite actor in this? Yes. Oh, Stuart Fell. Did Say he? again. Aww. And you're thinking, who the hell was Stuart Fell? Stuart Fell. Stuart Fell. All the who. Hi, Ian. But in in this, he was the giant rat. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Yes, when, when they decided that the, the rat in the mini set was breaking too many bits, you watch the rat at the end of episode one as he climbs over the railing. The railing collapses underneath him because that's Aww. when they went. Yeah, miniature sets aren't going to work. Um, Sitfeld climb into this rat suit and lurch about the place like a rat. It's not as bad as let's say the Merca. Oh man, you, you oh, beat me to it. That was we were going to have a discussion on that. Pig, I'll take that weird pig ape me. thing that kind of jumps out of the woods at the at the beginning of Android to Tara. <laughs> yeah, let's, see, let, let's, let's let's go back to this. Which, which is worse, the giant rat or the murka? Come on, really? I can't. You don't like the murka killed rat. the rat. Hey, I'm sorry, the murka killed Ingrid. The giant rat just what was it? Why? It was a guard. Yeah, no, the little mini rat was a guard. The giant rat. Well, it had to pull in... Leela. It wanted to rape Leela. <laughs> and, it, and it had oh. to eat. It had to eat Chang's legs. So right. rats got to eat. Rats got to eat. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think the rat and the, 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 the rat are tied in my mind now. Giant rat. Dustin Hoffman in a rat suit going to the monster game. <laughs> Well, at least which, because the Merc was doing Warriors of the Deep. By the time the Merc turned up, your expectations were pretty damn low with that. The giant rat was in towns of Wayne Chang. By the time that turns up, you're thinking, hey, nothing can go wrong with, oh my god, what's that? <laughs> 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 it's the one weak thing in this entire story, more so than the, than the, the race and however you want to view that. Um, yeah, it's, it's not good. Which is a, it's a shame. <laughs> 
it's, it's such a small coffee. effect as well. You can move past it. Well, I like yeah. it. Since we're bringing up favorite characters, I might as well bring up my favorite character in it, who who is Mister Sin, played by the incomparable diminutive actor Deep, Deep Roy, who He's has who awesome. has perhaps the most pornographic name ever to be in Doctor Ever. Who. It's awesome. <laughs> Deep Roy, oh yeah, and uh, a lot of you people, modern day people, may know Deep Roy from the mm-hmm. uh, indomitably creepy uh, remake of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, starring Johnny Depp, and oh, oddly oh, enough, yes. directed was... by Tim Burton. Wow, Tim mm-hmm. Burton and Johnny Depp. Every Oompa Loompa, never... wasn't he? Yes, he was yeah. every Oompa Loompa. No way. Is... It's the oh, same dude. Yeah, he was every shag. Uh, they did like a, in the the making of documentary that's on that was on the first DVD set. Uh-huh. Of Deep Roy going, doing basically each position for each one. Well, I knew I knew the Oompa Loompa guy was all one guy, but I didn't realize yeah. it was Mr. Sin. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's Mr. yeah. Sin. Oh, he was also wow. Dopey voice. What was that, Dave? During he was the... Dopey McCool in Return of the Jedi. Oh, oh, dear God! Well, there's our Star Wars reference. So we're and he was in Star Trek. Uh, so he's been he, yeah he, he was and he's on Peg. Oh really? He was, was he a on... legless Sufi evil guy in oh. one of the episodes. Well, you know, he and Simon Pegg are the only people that have appeared in Doctor Who, Star Wars, and Star Trek. Ah. Wow. That's now, pretty was, interesting. When, track, when was Pegg in Doctor Who? Uh, he was Pegg uh, the was editor of the first episode in the long game. game. Oh, okay. Yeah. And yeah, we come but... to a stop. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> now, does anybody know if the voice that if, if that was Deep Roy himself making the it's on the wires? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think yeah. so, because uh, I think he's uh, his actual name is Deep Rock. So he's uh, Indian of nature. So right. I'm not yeah. certain if they dubbed it in or had someone else come in and do his voice or whether it was uh, just, uh, oh, John Bennett doing the voice. So maybe he Could did be. the pig noises. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> the Peking homunculus. What a name. <laughs> I, I, yeah. love, I love that. That is a name that captures the imagination. It did when I was yeah. young reading this novelization. Mm. And the idea that he, the organic parts were parts of a pig, conjures some great images in my head. The yeah. cerebral cortex of a pig. He's kind of yes. an early general grievous, actually. Some <laughs> <way>. yeah, <laughs> a little bit. He also started off as a toy. Like, weird. I'm sorry, guys. No, go ahead. Sorry. I love how you get these weird kind of like throwaway bits of of technology. Mm-hmm. Like like this whole thing where it's like, yeah, it was designed as a toy. And it was, you know, a, 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 basically a cyborg. And it went nuts and started parts. killing people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the pig part took over. <laughs> I love that when they just a, a casual line like that just sparks the imagination so much, you know. Douglas Adams was great at that, where you'd throw in one line, you'd be like, whoa, yep. what? Well, it's so, something, I mean, it's totally implausible, but the way they phrased it is, oh yeah, they took the cere- cerebral cortex, part of the cerebral cortex of a pig and wired it up, and it's like, okay, all right, that makes sense. And by the time he's up in the sort of, it was weird. It sort of reminded when I watched this the first time. It was so close to Star Wars time that I was thinking, are they trying to sort of play on the sort of Star Wars laser thing with 
Mr. Sin up in a turret shooting lasers and snorting I... like... That was weird when he was up I, in the turret. I don't know if it was Star Warsy, but that was definitely weird when he was up there going. That's what I. That, that's what it, I love about pretty, this is he starts out as a puppet, then you think he's a supernatural puppet. By the end, he's a pig brain in a puppet body shooting lasers out of a dragon's eyes, and it all makes sense. It does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, shooting this everybody. is why not Star Wars, because this would have been written and made uh, 1976, broadcast early 77, so, yeah. so pre-Star yeah. Wars. Um, yeah, you've really you, you're looking. Uh, it's the next season that you start to see the Star Wars influences and the decline in viewership because Doctor right. Who isn't Star Wars. Right, right. Mm. Um, but yeah, that that scene was far more epic in the novel. I'll admit, when I first saw that, and even when I was watching it again two nights ago, it just in the novel, Mister Scene's blasting away like he's got some sort of laser machine gun, and you know they they're crawling around the room. It's a proper action scene here. It's just like oh, there's a there's a dodgy bit of video effects and something went poof and they're going to talk very slowly about how they uh how they take him down yeah no he's he's destroying our cover two of us go he can't fire on both of us that sounds like an excellent plan what time should we commence this oh should we stay in about 20 minutes got to have some tea buzz okay well let's just stand around here a bit more um the cover's good enough even though it isn't but yeah it's tables and stuff they're they're behind wooden tables Well, Shag, you mentioned that that you wanted to talk about some of the spin-off stuff from this. Uh, I think we've covered most of the characters. Let's go ahead and uh, hit up with that. Okay, or actually, Steven, I'm going to I'm going to turn over to Stephen first, and then I'll follow up. Cool. Okay. Um, there's obviously there's the Jacob and Lightfoot stuff, which I, it, it astounds me. It's taken them so dickish so long to put the two actors together. It seems like the moment they started looking at extended Doctor Who stuff, they've been natural to go, oh yeah, Jacob and Lightfoot. And it took them like ten years to do so, but. Um, back in the days of the Virgin novels in the mid-90s, um, there was a range called The Missing Adventures, which was looking at Doctors 1 to 6 and, oh, what adventures could they have had in between the TV stories. And there was a sequel to Talons of Wang Chiang, and it was called The Shadow of Wang Chiang. Um, and it was written by David A. McKinty who is a he's a really good Doctor Who novelist and he does these stories which build on existing content. He's contributed some great things to the fictional universes. And um yeah, featured the fourth Doctor, Romana version one and K nine, so it takes place during the key to time. And it features uh, the main villain is Lee and Chang's daughter and uh, Mr C makes a return. You'll be pleased to hear. <laughs> now I've I've read a lot of David McKinty stuff and I always find it's like it's sort of hard to get going on his books. They're always a little more dense than some of the other writers, but you're right. His ideas and the continuity he plays with is always great. Yeah. I haven't read that one. He's it's in my it. collection, but I haven't read it yet. Is it worth it? Um, I, I think it is. It, it's a worthy sequel. I mean, it, it takes me ideas. Basically, Lisa Chang's daughter um, is out for revenge for obvious reasons and is in a position to do something about it, and she's got Mr. Sin on her side. Um, and then, uh, far more recently, to the point where it was um, never really thought it was going to happen, but in 2012, there was a big Finnish audio called The Butcher of Brisbane. Oh. Um, and that's a prequel and sequel at the same time, because it's a fifth Doctor audio that takes place when, um, uh, what's his name? I've forgotten his name. Magnus Greel is uh, before he comes back in time. So it's kind of like the build-up to the World War that's mentioned in the story. Um, 
and I, I, there's there's various bits where the Peter Davis doctor is like, well, we can't go and deal with this because I'm already there doing that. A reference to the fact that uh, an earlier incarnation is also present in the same time zone. It is such a good story. Uh, it, and seeing Magnus Grill go from sort of a political leader to becoming you know, sort of a dictator to becoming the Butcher of Brisbane is really good. And, and you, you, someone was talking about the doctor fighting on the front lines of a war. I mean, this is where it happens. This is where they talk about that stuff. And, and I'm, of course, I'm a big Peter Davison fan, uh, much to Thomas's uh, chagrin. But it's Look, it, you're allowed to, wa- to like the most boring doctor of all. I, I respect that. Hate you a lot. Anyway, so it's uh, who, who was that? He doesn't like Peter Davison. Like this is a Perry Como of, of the Doctor Who world, Peter Davison. You know yeah, you go in the corner. Okay. Cop, you go in your no, corner. Well, you're, you're allowed to just be completely and utterly wrong and not appreciate what he brought to the role. Exactly. That's okay. That's what Tell him to go brings s- you. I just don't have to listen to it. Sometimes the Doctor's a veterinarian. That's right. <laughs> Thomas, just go sit in your corner with Time Lash and shut the hell up. Okay. Seriously, we'll let you know when the when the adults are done talking. So, <laughs> the the Butcher of Brisbane is. Such a good story. You get Nyssa and Tegan and Turlo, and they actually try to find something for each character, each companion to do. So you get a story where all the companions are engaged. The Doctor wait, 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 wait. very much Nyssa, engaged. T- oh, no, they, they, they were. They were. Never mind. Yep. And, yeah. uh, you I was get, about, you it's get more than most of the TV stories did with uh, that crew. Exactly. <laughs> so highly recommend it. I'm glad you brought that up, Stephen. It's funny that you mentioned this because uh, I just showed for a bunch of people uh, at a little Doctor get-together, I just showed Kinda. Mm-hmm. And they were asking about what's up with this girl who goes to sleep for the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should nice. show them Black yeah. Orchid. I, I think Black Orchid's the most approachable Peter Davison yeah, it, story for non-Who people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm sorry, to, Stephen, you got more, more, uh, more spinoff, Stephen? Because I've got a, a further list. Well, I just wanted oh, to go back I, for I, a second. Will. Deliber- oh, no, go ahead, okay. Stephen. I was about to say, I'm just avoiding the Jake on Lightfoot series because there's, um, there's an awful lot to say about it. But those are the two key ones. Um, a, a novel from, I think, 95 or 96, and then this audio from last year. Well, speaking of Jago, uh, Bill wanted to say, have a little thing he had to say about Jago. What you, would you want to get in there? Well, yeah, he, uh, Christopher Benjamin, later played, pl- played a character in David Tennant's run in um, yeah. uh, The Unicorn yeah, and, and, and a Wasp. And I don't oh know. Oh my God, he was in that. Yes, he was. <laughs> he was Colonel Hugh. I never put that together. But he was also in two other classic stories as well. Yeah, oh, he was in him the and half Invasion of, a... of Time, I think. Was it... um, he was. I'm looking at the wrong page there. I'm trying to remember. Um, was it the Invasion of Time? Uh, not... I've got lost for a moment. <laughs> right. I'm clicking on Well. His character reminded me. I I don't know if they took it from Stan Lee with all the alliteration of everything. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I know. All I could see was Stan Lee, true believer. <laughs> but also, you also get the sort of uh, carnival barker thing, uh, right? Right. That he oh, yeah. did as well, and yeah. I really enjoyed that. It, 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 it added a lot of flavor to the character, and I also Which attribute- is what a theater manager was back in Victorian mm-hmm. England. He yeah, was because- a carnival. Some of his exclamations, like I love the moment when he turns around and just goes corks for no reason he, he's just <laughs> such great language coming from um that's right the title plate was that... to gold in inferno mm-hmm. oh he's in it he oh wow he, oh he was yes in inferno, he is Wang Chang, and then unicorn and the wasp and i <sighs> love the fact that that they give jago a sidekick and to to, yeah. to play off of before 
Casey. The time. Yeah, Casey. The before Irish. he and wife have become that that double. And he's like, yeah. you haven't been drinking, have you? No, sir. I haven't touched it at all. It's time you started. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, Why is he and Australian? What's amazing about them is their double <laughs> See, I would love to see like, a contrast show with Jago, Mikefoot, and Richard Mace. Um, Richard Mace. <laughs> Richard Mace, Jago, Lightfoot as just like a, an ass-kicking, time-traveling team. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. um, what, what's amazing about this story is we, we talked about this double act, and they were revered for many, many, many years until Big Finish finally put them together. This was their only appearance together. Um, they don't actually meet until episode five. And that's if you mm. someone who's known this and actually watches, like, what's going? On? Why aren't they together? So not only is it just one story; it's only one third of one story that this bond between these two characters was formed. Right. Well, that's I phenomenal. If, and Holmes manages to to kind of like keep a double act going with each of them because you got Jago and, and Casey on the one side, and Lightfoot and Leela become a double act. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah. Well, would, yeah. Would we so those had... four characters are, are fantastic to watch. It's it, it's great to have story only, uh, not companions, characters who are vibrant and Lee wanting more. It doesn't happen that often. Will, did you? Did we cut you off, or did you get to finish everything you wanted to say about Jago? Uh, just oh, one, just one, one point. <laughs> no, no. Um, if we had had a shorter serial here, and would we have had such good character development of Jago and Lightfoot and all the mm. characters? Well, this you know, brings up not. a point I, I wanted to make. Is that I'm one of these people. I, I don't. I don't like a lot of the six-part serials because I think that too much filler creeps in. Punchy, Agreed. Punchy, run, yeah. run. <laughs> but this is yeah. this is the the exception to the rule. There isn't a lot of filler here. Well, there's, there's there so is, much. There, there's there's, there, the there's a lot I... of going back to the same sets. Like they they clearly you need they film certain scenes together. Like oh look they're back on that set again. Oh this group's gone this way. This group's gone this way. So there's a lot. I do feel like there is some filler, but I don't mind with this story. Yeah. And what's great is that they've got some amazing location work. So when they are returning to the theater, because they're shooting in actual theater, yes. um, they're able to make a lot more use of it. Um, that that chase scene, although it is quite slow paced compared to what you expect nowadays, the chase scene with Grill and the Doctor. Up and down the ladder, swinging across uh, the the void. It, it's it's really good stuff, and the direction is fantastic. Well, the doctor's kung fu fighting in this one. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, we haven't swinging. seen that since John since John Pertwee. I mean, he has a full on fight. Now, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah, flipping people over when Leela blow darts the assassin. <laughs> and the yeah, way I that thought you up. said, I thought I said no Janus thorns, but I saved your life. Sure enough. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, it, I told her to stay put, and she didn't. <laughs> right now, one thing with uh, with the filler in the in the theater is, if Magnus Grill was so, you know, decrepit and weak, how is he swinging around, jumping through the theater? I'm like, really? I I, I call bullshit on that. <laughs> I mean, there's <laughs> just, you know, like what? L- last scene we see him, you know, he's begging um for 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 more women that he can suck the life out of. And now he's, uh, you know, been there, you know, done that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, I'm married, so it gets sucked out of me. Anyway. Uh, oh, hi, honey. <laughs> yeah, not, not now. I've been just talking to some of the guys. <laughs> he's just, a, he's just a, a spoiled brat. It's like, oh, it's not good enough. You send me one. Give me two. 
I need two. Two. I, I, like, I, I wondered why he was kind of upset that he's like, this one's all muscle and blah, blah, blah. It's like, isn't that wouldn't you want someone like Leela to put in your machine? Wouldn't she have extra if life energy? energy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When you squeeze a lemon, though, you don't want like a rough, tough lemon. You want one that's nice and juicy and supple. You I know? guess. She's I, I, enough for me. And all the young girls I've murdered, I know I like them soft. So. <laughs> all right, real quick. I'm going to run through some more, um, some more <laughs> continuity stuff real quick here. Um, there's now an image in my mind I don't want. You'll well, never easy un- to bury out in Florida. You just put them in the uh, swamplands out there. Exactly. We have gators everywhere. Shh, so. Don't tell um, our secrets. Anyway, real, back to the real quick <laughs> on the uh, Jago and Lightfoot uh, big finish stuff. I'm not going to talk about it extensively, but just for Thomas's sake, uh, they do actually meet Colin Baker in one adventure. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely worth checking there's, out. There's an upcoming one uh, where they'll feature in one of the Tom Baker stories that they're doing. Oh, they're doing Ooh. a Tom Baker one. They, oh, they've got wait. Tom Baker. They're doing a series of that, and one of them will be him returning to Victorian London uh, <sighs> and meeting Jago and Lightfoot. They're guys, I'm telling you, they are hysterical. And now the lady who does them, who produces them, Lisa Bowerman, yeah. who also plays uh, Bernice Summerfield, Benny. she could not stop raving at Gallifrey One about these and just said they were her absolute favorite adventures. They, and they asked, they, they pulled the room. They said, everyone here who's listened to Jago and Lightfoot, raise your hand, and then everyone raise their hand. Would you recommend Jago and Lightfoot to someone else and everyone also raise their hand. So, all right, I'm going to run through real quick as fast as I can because we're running short on time. Very quickly, in terms of uh, sales figures, it's the best-selling series that they've had outside of the main Doctor Who range. So that's why Big Finish are throwing them out there like crazy. They're selling better than anything. That's phenomenal. Okay, so real quick, uh, in the novel The Body Snatchers, the eighth Doctor bumps into Professor Lightfoot again. Uh, Yes! He does not not tell him he's the What's that? I said I fail at being a doctor. No, that's Shag. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I haven't read this one but yet because it's in my stack of eight doctors I haven't finished yet. But apparently in Emotional Chemistry, they also deal with Magnus Greel and his time experiment. So it's, I, I have about oh. 15, 20 more doc, eight doctor books to read. That's one of them. It's very tangential. It, it rates okay. as being slightly higher than, oh, this thing happened once. Gotcha. All right. It, it, yeah. <laughs> and apparently there's a 10th Doctor comic book. Uh, called the Time Machination, which takes place immediately before this story, so uh, that where the, the story actually ends with the Doctor and Leela landing. So, it, but if you're really looking for any Towns of Wang Chiang, uh, you know, spinoffs, the real answer is going to be Jago and Life at Audios, um, the 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 novel, the Shadow of Wang Chiang, and then the Butcher of Brisbane audio. Oh crap! One more huge thing. I'm sorry. Huge, massive thing we forgot to mention is um, the 51st century Time Agents. Oh yeah. yeah, duh! That's a huge thing. That's that's Jack Harkness, guys. Captain Jack Harkness mm. is from the 51st century and talks about he used to be a time agent. I mean, that's a direct connection to this story. You know, I never, yes, put, I never would, put that in there. I, I that that's I noticed Stephen it. Moffat just throwing something in, mm. not expecting the character to be as big as he was. Yeah. Wow, we can actually we can actually credit Russell T. Davis for doing his. Uh, his homework on this. Wow, that's surprising. Stephen Moffat. Moffat. Oh, it's, it was Moffat who <laughs> Moffat wrote that. It, you know, because well, it was then a I, good then I'm not surprised at that all. Uh, Davis, okay, didn't say, yeah, that's fine, not realizing that Torchwood would eventually happen. Well, but Russell T. Davies did come out and say that the first half hour of dialogue in this in this story is some of the best dialogue ever written yeah. for television. Yeah. Mm. It, yeah. Oh, no and doubt. It is. Uh, 
Um, the DVD of this is quite notable because it was the first time they revisited a previous release and re-released it. Um, but yeah, they do these revisitations box sets where they take DVDs that were released early on in the run and don't match up to the current level of extras, and they go back and they put in extra documentaries and features, things that have come to light. So Talented Wong Chang was in the first set with Case Van Trezani in the Doctor Who movie. And it's worth buying just for the uh, boosted Doctor Who movie DVD because the extras on that are phenomenal. Like an hour thing on how somebody tried to... Uh, uh, the remaking Doctor Who in the 90s about the uh, production company calling Leonard Nimoy into directing it. Well, there's that whole, oh, there's a whole book, and I'm sure, Shag, you've read this one, the, the book that Jean-Marc Lofier wrote about the different incarnations that the Doctor Who movie went through before we got what we got on Fox. Mm. I'm familiar with it. I've never read it, but I do know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Was that the Nth Doctor? The Nth Doctor, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that we're definitely going to have to talk about, uh, because I... As maligned as it is, I know that the character who portrayed the uh, ninth or the eighth Doctor is really kind of a favorite, especially in the big Finnish audio. So it, it's funny if you look at it. Eventually, in, in the run of the, oh, go ahead, Sean. Go ahead. I'm I was going to say eventually in the run of the show we are going to cover the Doctor Who movie, the yeah. Fox one, because it, uh, the fact that the movie just didn't really work. The character had the portrayal of the Doctor down great, and I, yeah. I, I'd love to have, do the something actor. on that. It, it's funny when you, if you consider it sh- purely on uh, length of length of tenure. Paul McGann oh, yeah. was the Doctor for the longest time, holding the holding the to take over. Yeah, I mean he held the position for a little bit less than fifteen years. And it's sad that he was only no. seated. Sorry, nine that. years. Sorry, nine years. Sorry. That he was only seated with that one sort of just below average movie. Yeah. But, but you know, the Whatchamacallits are good. The um, Whatchamacallits. Oh, those. The, watcher, the, ah. the, the big finish stuff that, that they've been doing with him. Are the oh, big yes, finish stuff is. is great. The comics in the Although I could do so without Nominal. But that's that's something uh, that we'll definitely get to when we get later in the yeah. year to the uh, Doctor mm-hmm. Who movie. And gentlemen, uh, you are more than welcome to come back from that. I, I know, Stephen, you're a big fan of that time period, and you're really knowledgeable at that. So I'd love to have you on. Uh, guys, awesome. is there anything else you want to say about this show that you want to wrap up with it? I got about two more hours worth of stuff. So you uh, can go straight yeah. to hell, Shag. <laughs> <laughs> we we can expect to our own comments. My my comment would just be "fuck you, Shag," but hey. <laughs> Oh, you know, we'll stop recording. He'll keep talking. Yes. You know, the computer will be off. Well, He'll be laying in bed. Blah, 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 blah. And furthermore, blah, blah, blah. And his wife will have the earplugs in. And yeah. <laughs> so like a normal day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Essentially. But yeah, that, this this is a great episode. And uh, I, the things that came out of it, the characters that came out, especially Lightfoot and Jago, just really fun uh if you guys are only if you guys who are listening to this are only familiar with the current iteration of doctor who from uh, eccleston on go check out some of these older episodes go check out this one it's available unfortunately it's not available on netflix instant watch but you can get the dvd from netflix i'm certain it's in a lot of different packs go seek out this episode if you even have to go to your uh I'm certain it's on YouTube as There's well. There's parts so. of it on YouTube, but parts of it are blocked. You have to go. You can find it all on uh, DailyMotion. Okay. Dot com. Yeah. That's the whole okay. thing. Okay. That's where I De- ended up having to watch the last few part segments of it. But yes, definitely go check this out. This is this is 
one of the pinnacles of the uh, Tom Baker run, I would say. And I just it, really enjoyed doing it. If you're used to the pacing of the modern show, just understand the pacing was different back then and that it was a half yeah. hour. That's just a, you got to understand that going in. Once you can accept the pacing is different, you'll you'll see the gold that's there. Yes. And it, it's so. the it's one of the crown jewels of one of the crown jewels of the run of the classic show. Because, you know, after this, what we get? We get Graham Williams, who runs around and, and redoes Greek myths for a couple of years and lets Tom Baker run wild. You get uh, John Nathan Turner, who is, shall we say, in fits and starts. But this was, this was, Hinchcliffe was like the last really, truly consistent era for the show and it, this is this is its last hurrah and it was a great last hurrah if you ask me oh yeah so shag did you get a new um fuzzy prostitute pick- pickup line out of this ah butting lotus <laughs> of the dawn <laughs> i think that's how the show should end right there yeah with that we're gonna say goodbye everyone thanks everyone for showing up and thank you all for listening to this episode of who true freaks bye everyone Good night. Thank you for having Bye. me. Um, when do I get my uh, ladies? <laughs> Quote unquote ladies. So don't worry. Yeah, just <laughs> go downstairs Jack before gonna, you. Uh, oh, hold on, hold on. Let me blow the dust off the contract. <laughs> Lady boys. Oh! <laughs> exactly. Do so, do you I've want them with or without? Oh. Go ahead, go away. No, do you want them with or without rat costumes? There's a certain. There's a certain. Segment of Milan, Italy, where the legal definition of lady and boy, the line isn't as clear as it usually is everywhere else in the world. So you got to remember that's where the contracts are made. Sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com, please be aware that if you use the Amazon.com link located on our website, www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com, Two True Freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase. There is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this. 
All proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated podcasts rolling, and it really helps us out. So please, use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan, on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.